Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of the English Video Podcast here from the U.S. Embassy in Amman, Jordan. Uh, I'm here uh, getting ready to start talking about the role of women in creating the Great American Songbook with a noted singer, artist, playwright, theatrical producer, and diplomat, Joanne Schmoll. Did I get that right? Sort of, kind of, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Joanne, thank you for joining us today. Um, I, I'm very excited about our conversation because, uh, one, we love music here at the embassy, and two, we like to learn about how music tells a story about America that many folks outside of America and maybe even some in the U.S. Um, don't necessarily appreciate or know. And as it turns out, uh, you have some expertise in that, uh, and that's that you can share with us in that in that area. Um, but before we start talking about kind of what we'll focus on for most of this. Uh, podcast. I, I wanted to let our viewers know a little bit more about you um, because you have a very interesting background. You uh, you basically work at the embassy here, and uh, you have one of the most important jobs in the embassy. Uh, <laughs> this is true, right? Uh, because at the very top of the embassy is something we call our front office or executive office, and uh, we have uh, folks up there that are our lead diplomats to the Kingdom of Jordan. Uh, and they cannot literally do their job hour by hour, minute by minute, without having a team of people helping them make sure that they're in the right place, properly prepared, uh, and, 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 and on time. And, you know, you basically lead that team. Uh, so I, I can tell you, like, I know I, none of us at, at my level would be able to do our job unless you were excellent at you doing your job. Well, thank you. Uh, so now where have you served in your diplomatic career so far? My first tour was in Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak. And then my second tour was in Myanmar, where I was hoping hoping to see this burgeoning democracy grow. And unfortunately, there were some of these problems with ethnic cleansing and genocide, which broke a lot of hearts. And then I got to go to Jerusalem and see one side of the many wonderful Things about the Middle East and the history and the, the the wonderful sights of this wonderful history. And then I got to come here to Amman and finish my checklist of all the wonderful places I wanted to visit, like Wadi Rum and Petra and Jerash and the baptismal site and Mount Nebo and everything. So it's been a wonderful visit and a wonderful discovery of this part of the world. Well, it seems clear so far you have not had a, a boring diplomatic career. All of your assignments seem very interesting and, and, and eventful, uh, to say the least. Uh, but you've also brought your, your, a piece of your, your, your own uh, personality and background, to, to, it sounds like, to every place that you've served. And uh, so that's why I'm very excited to have you uh, with us today. Um, in addition to being, you know, an, an outstanding diplomat, you also come from a, a, a classically uh, trained background as a musician, as a singer, as an actress. Yes. Um, so, so I understand that you studied um, when you were in college, uh, both international relations and theater at the same time. Did you know this is what was going to happen or was that just how did that happen? At the time, theater was just for love. Mm. And to me, it was uh, theater and acting is a real study in to why people do the things we do. Mm. And then the international relations was 
because I loved the macro side of why people or nations do the things they do. And I developed a lifelong love for cultural affairs of using music, using theater, using the arts to meet people and build bridges and create understanding. And, and I, so I've always loved that. And then I went off to be a professional singer, actor for many years, which meant that I went off to be a poor, starving artist and did a whole bunch of things to keep a roof over my head. Like I learned how to do administrative support work. And, um, of course, I waited tables because almost all of us do. But uh, about eight years ago, I was like, I would like to get into the foreign service and see what I can do with cultural affairs and, and so on. And then I joined. And with each tour, I have been able to do some sort of cultural work, some sort of performing that with in conjunction with local musicians and artists. So that's been the, probably the most rewarding part for me. Well, you know, for for um, Americans, uh, you know, a lot of them don't appreciate that their own foreign service uh, are not always people that, you know, went to diplomacy schools from the time they were in kindergarten. Uh, what makes our diplomatic service, I, I think, pretty remarkable is that we have a wide range of backgrounds. Um, Very much so. You know, and then yeah. we bring them all. And, and like you, you've done throughout your career, we, we take parts of ourselves and, and uh, we, we find where our passion leads, uh, leads us in our diplomatic service. Um, so, I, you know, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's fantastic. Uh, you, you know, in, in the course of you performing uh, during your diplomatic service, uh, it seems to me that you probably have a, a pretty wide range of, of experiences. Maybe you could give us a couple on each end of the spectrum. Well, when I was in Sierra Leone, I met this um, local Sierra Leonean guy who was into business development, but his hobby was piano, and he knew every musician in Freetown. So we put together a jazz band, Mm. and during the Ebola outbreak, we were able to do a lot of house concerts for diplomats, for the NGOs. And then once Ebola was beaten down, we started performing at festivals and in clubs and so on. So we had a great time. It was a combination of jazz and pop, a little R&B. Now, along uh, 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 your very impressive resume, I mean, one, one aspect of it really struck me, and it's like the main reason why I wanted you to come on our, our show today. Um, a few years ago, uh, and you're, you're going to have to tell us the whole story about how this all happened, but uh, you put together a, uh, a show based on uh, a very special group of female uh, American uh, songwriters. Right. And, uh, you know, to me, I, I, you know, I was I learned a lot just reading about your show. And I just thought, you know, our audience would, would love to know more about the, the show that you put together and some of the women that you feature in the show. Um, several years ago, I heard a friend of mine was singing songs by women songwriters. Hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a really good body of work that I didn't even know that women wrote. And because everybody knows who, or at least everybody in the United States knows who George Gershwin is. He wrote, summertime and the living is easy. Everybody knows that. But he also, he has a huge body of American popular song that he wrote with his brother, Ira. 
as the lyricist. And there's Cole Porter and Harold Arlen and um, Hoagie Carmichael and just these wonderful male songwriters. But most people do not know Dorothy Fields, Dana Suisse, Anne Rennell, Kay Swift, Doris Fisher, Tot Seymour, and a whole slew of other women that were writing with the men or alongside them. Some were mentored by the men. And I was like, I want to look into this. And the more research I did, rather than just having a concert to sing the music, I was like, this is a whole show. So I wrote a show to honor these women that don't get a whole lot of notice for the work. And about half the songs in the show were really famous songs that the audience would go, I didn't know a woman wrote that. Uh And then I also was able to introduce them to songs that they'd never heard before that are really interesting. And one of my favorites is uh, from the 1920s is no other one. Yes, no other one can ever do what you do when you do what you do kissing me. And, And so that was by Todd Seymour and V. Lonhurst. And so stuff like that is fun, but you also get songs like uh, I Can't Give You Anything But Love or Which is one of my Willow favorites, yeah. Because, yes, yeah. you said you sing it to your wife. And <laughs> there's a uh, that's one of Dorothy Fields' earlier songs. Uh, she Dorothy Fields is great. She was the daughter of Lou Fields, who was a vaudeville star and producer. And he was determined that his little girl was going to grow up and marry well and get away from this horrible, horrible showbiz life. And she was going to live on the Upper East Side of New York and be in high society. But she said, no, Daddy, I want to write songs. And he says, women do not write song lyrics. And she said, I'm not a woman. I'm no lady. Right now, I forgot that story. Okay, he was the one that created the that joke. Uh, that's no lady. That's, that's my, my wife. wife. Yeah. <laughs> and and he said, "Ladies do not write song lyrics." And Dorothy said, "I'm no lady. I'm your daughter." And you know, it doesn't. He got okay. it. And um, so she wrote music. Wrote lyrics incredibly intelligent, witty lyrics for over six decades, working with 18 different composers over that time. And she wrote for Broadway. She wrote for the Cotton Club in Harlem. She wrote um, jazz music. She wrote American musical theater music and of all different styles because it was six, six decades thing. Styles change. And the the song that you love, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, um, she was working with her first musical writing partner. Um, uh, what's his Jimmy name? Mc- Jimmy McHugh. Yeah. How could I forget that? Jimmy McHugh. And they were walking down the street um, by Tiffany's, the, the big diamond and gem store. And uh, they saw a young sailor, I believe, with his girlfriend. 
and he was saying something like, honey, I'd love to buy you all the diamond rings I could, but right now all I, I can't give you anything but love. And, and she, and ding, light bulb went off and they had a, a full song within a couple of hours based on that idea. I, I send this to my wife. Basically, around her birthday and around other important holidays where gift giving is expected. But I, so I appreciate and identify very much with that sailor. I mean, just taking a step back from this. I mean, your show was called uh, that that you ended up writing is called Tin, Tin Pan Lady. Now, what does Tin Pan um, refer to? As music publishing began to co- began to congregate more in New York because the theater was there, the center of vaudeville was there, um, a new radio um, world was starting to develop. You you had um, publishers that kind of all ended up in a similar neighborhood down in Chelsea. And the buildings would be filled with piano players trying to play the song and sell it to a vaudeville star or sell it to later on a recording artist or sell it to a producer to try and put it in the show that they were producing and so on. So one summer day, a journalist was walking down the street and there was no air conditioning. So all these windows were open and you heard like, a hundred pianos all playing at the same time. And he said it sounded like a bunch of tin pans clanging around, and that's where the name Tin Pan Alley came from. Now, a purist, a music historian purist, would say that Tin Pan Alley era was a certain set of years in the late 1910s or 1920s and after that it's it's something else but i take a more expansive view and think that tin pan alley is a reflection of this creative spirit that was really alive at the time um in the 20s, you had the Harlem Renaissance, you had jazz evolving, you had pop music, and you had all this European music, and it was all sort of coming together and creating new sound, new ideas. And you had all these people that were very creative and had a lot of energy and a lot of wit and intelligence, and they brought it all to the music, but with also um, a sense of fun, a sense of play. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was really creative. And then as the years went on, you had, you went from having songwriters and performers. And you had people start to perform their own work in the 50s when rock and roll started to evolve. Um, late 40s when jazz musicians would start, were performing their own work and so on. So it just kept expanding and growing. And so I think of Tin Pan Alley era as that time when there was just this incredible lifeblood of American music. That was growing and 
remarkably, it took hold all around the world. Mm. Um, jazz musicians became diplomatic ambassadors. Right, right. And so on. And then you, in the 60s, you are uh, still part of the Tin Pan Alley area was the Brill Building. And that's where Carol King and Carly Simon were were writing and uh, Laura Nero mm-hmm. and so on. There's, so there's just all this great music and I love that it, it evolved, but it also speaks to some of the creative energy in society itself. So Tin Pan Alley today is, is, you know, it's a thing of the past physically, but the legacy of that time um, is pretty clear if you look at the artists today who have control over their own songbooks and have control over the intellectual property that they created. Right. I mean, I, I think we talked a little bit before about the professionalization of music um, uh, that, that happened as, as a result of kind of that economy of Tin Pan Alley, uh, mm-hmm. which empowered a lot of uh, a lot of very creative people and gave them money that they uh, and, and right. the ability to sustain themselves, um, especially for um, some of the women that you've profiled uh, mm-hmm. that may not have had the, that, that, that kind of economic support otherwise. Right. Um, some of the songwriters in the 30s, early 30s, were trying to protect their own creative output. So they formed the American Society for Composers, Producers, and that's it. American Society for Composers and Producers, I think. And it's um, they helped control the copyright of the music so that when a song became popular and, um, and the radios paid – Radio stations paid to play it or it was produced in a show. Royalties would come back to the creators. So it enabled them to live, some of them to live quite well. And um, it's still a really thriving organization now. There's also BMI. There's another uh, SOCAP, I think. That's from, that's a Canadian mm-hmm. uh, rights organization. But, uh, yeah, it helped artists to, to grow financially. And, and honestly, if you're, if you're an Instagrammer today and you've got your own YouTube channel and whatever you're doing on, you know, these different platforms and you're making a little money off of a, an advertisement, that's actually not that different in economic models. So, uh, you know, we all, I guess we all have, uh, um, uh, even if we're not great singers or artists, we, we all have, uh, a little bit to, to thank, uh, the, the artist of Tin Pan Alley and, uh, ASCAP for, for doing. Right. Um, now, I did want to talk a little bit about um, returning back to, to some of the uh, important roles that women songwriters played during this era. Um, it, in, in many cases, uh, you know, and, and you've got all the great stories, but uh, there are clear examples where some of our biggest stars, male stars, um, might not have had uh, the careers that they have, have wanted um, without uh, the incredible support. And, and I'm thinking particularly about um, uh, uh, Ruth Lowe. So I don't know if maybe you could tell your, our viewers about her story. Okay. Uh, Ruth Lowe was a musician, a piano player, and she was in a, in a band and played with various musicians. And she met the love of her life 
and they married and were blissfully happy for about a year until he was killed in a car accident. She was devastated and poured all of her creative energy and her grief into a song called I'll Never Smile Again. And uh, she knew that it would be a really great song for this new up-and-coming singer called Frank Sinatra. So... What she did was she went to where the Tommy Dorsey band was playing. That was Frank Sinatra's first gig as the soloist for the Tommy Dorsey band. And um, she stood outside stage door every night hoping to get to Mr. Dorsey to give him this song. And finally, one of the musicians just took pity on her and took the music and showed it to Dorsey and it became Frank Sinatra's first recording big hit. And it's, it's a stunning work of art and it, um, it's I'll never smile again until I smile at you. I'll never laugh again. What else could I do? And so it makes me sad to sing it. But um, she had a couple of other songs after that, but none of them were quite as big as I'll Never Smile Again. It was huge. And um, who else? Oh, um, Anne Rennell was a Radcliffe piano student. And she went to a George Gershwin concert and went up and introduced herself to him after the concert and said, will you please mentor me? And he took her up on it. And um, she wrote Willow Weep for Me. And then she's the first woman to write a full score for a film. Oh wow! For like yeah. a like a Hollywood film, yeah. Like, wow. it, it, and um, she did that in, later in the thirties, mm-hmm. and she also helped write some of the music for um, the Three Little Pigs. The Three Little Pigs. The movie, The Three Little Pigs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and who else do you want to know about? Uh, most of the songwriters, if you're again, if you're being a purist, most of the Tin Pan Alley songwriters tended to be white, mm. um, but the influence was definitely coming from jazz, which was happening up in Harlem or in Chicago. So it was definitely influencing the music, and um, so I, in my expansive view of what. Tin Pan Alley is. I included people like Billie Holiday, who, an extraordinary jazz singer who wrote God Bless the Child and um, what's... Strange what's, Fruit, right? Strange, no, she did not write that. Oh, she just okay. sang it. There were, a lot of these songwriters did write songs that were placed in shows up in Harlem, like at the Cotton Club. In fact, um, Dorothy Fields first couple of songs that she and Jimmy McHugh placed in a show. She was so excited. She took her whole family up to Harlem to see this show. But then what had happened was they took the songs and rewrote the lyrics to be really bawdy. And <laughs> um, 
Dorothy Fields' parents were like, no way you're doing this anymore. (laughs) So that's what taught Dorothy Fields to develop, to maintain control of her music. Nobody was going to rewrite her lyrics ever again. And so that was that's a, was an important contractual issue to learn on. Well, maybe we'll close uh, with talking a little bit about uh, Kay Swift, uh, who Kay Swift was great. She was also she was born in upper upper crust, sent to finishing school, and was in the very first class of the music school that became Juilliard. The famous Juilliard Academy. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And so she was classically trained musician. And But then it was the 20s. She went to a party, and she met this guy named George Gershwin, who was playing this, um, you know, casual, fun, inflected, swinging stuff. And it, it they... Um, they became musical soulmates and very close friends and maybe more. Maybe more. Um, but uh, she taught him a lot about music theory because he was a self-taught musician. So she taught him a lot about musical theory, which enabled him to write for and Bess mm. and, some of, and Rhapsody in Blue. And But she... Uh, he taught her the fun side of music and coached her with her husband, a banking scion, um, who liked to write. So she, he was the lyricist. She was the composer. She wrote, she was the first woman to write a full score for a Broadway show called Fine and Dandy. And it opened Shortly after the stock market crashed, but it still ran for two years. Oh, during yeah. the beginning of the Great Depression. Yeah. Wow. So it must have been a good show. It, it was a terrific show. It, it. I don't know that it would play today because it's such an old-fashioned book. But uh, there's some great music in this. How are you? Fun and dandy and do 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 da da da. Um. So there's some great music in that. I actually got a thank you note from the K-Swift estate for including her story and her music in my show. Isn't that nice? It's nice. And it's important. Uh, yeah. We, you know, beside, you know, you can read all the history books. Uh, you can listen to the songs. Uh, but if you don't take the time to, to learn the stories behind the people yeah. who created that history and created this music... You're missing a lot, so. Yeah, and because she was so connected to George musically, when George unfortunately died of a brain tumor at a very young age, um, she worked with uh, George's brother Ira uh, to finish songs, to bring them out so that more people could hear more of the Gershwin catalog. And so it's... I, I'm very happy to celebrate the work of women songwriters because there's so much there that a lot of people just are not aware of. 
but I love the fact that they could stand on a par with the men and that they could work together and they could work side by side or in friendly competition. And so that's what's exciting to me about recognizing the creative juices and the creative genius of anybody with a creative gift. But let's celebrate these women who a lot of them were just were not well known at all for a while. Well, thank you for uh, one telling their stories, and thank you for coming on to our our show and uh, and telling us about about your own research and getting to know you a little bit better. Um, and I, I can promise you, we'll use our social media platforms to to promote uh, some of these songs and music as to to help our our Jordanian audience appreciate them all the more. So, thank you very much for coming by, and uh, and thank you Absolutely. for sharing your music with us. Absolutely. Absolutely. 